Hello again, everyone. I'm Matt Laughlin. Welcome to the official Devils podcast, and it is a great joy to welcome our guest to the microphones, the Maven, Stan Fischler. Stan, thanks very much. Matty, if you think it was a great joy for me, it's like a thousand times because it's so wonderful to be back here at the arena, at the Rock, being with you. It's like uh, we never stopped. It was, uh, I have to tell you that uh, one of the saddest points in my professional life is that when the uh, Matt and the Maven segment had to had to stop. Not what we wanted to stop, but uh, so it's, uh, it reminds me of when I interviewed Glenn Hall right after the Blackhawks won the cup for, in 61. Everybody is celebrating and like the goalie he was, he was in the corner with a can of beer. I said, Glenn, I was writing a story about how great this is. The Blackhawks have won the cup and haven't won it since 1938. How do you feel about it? He said, I'm enthused. (laughs) Well, I am enthused, too, maybe with a little more emotion behind it uh, than Glenn Hall. But speaking of Matt and the Maven, and the reason it ended was a good opportunity for me. I left television where I loved working, covering the Devils games, but I had a chance to become the radio play-by-play announcer. And all good things do come to an end. Unfortunately, that was a little premature ending for Matt and the Maven, but we did have a lot of fun doing it. We're going to spend the next half hour or so talking about some Devils memories that you have, but also letting our listeners know a little bit more about your history in the sport. Why hockey? What attracted you to hockey? I know you like other sports. Baseball is very important to you. But what is it about this sport that gave you such joy, such passion to this day? Well, it all started with a mistake. My father was supposed to take me to see Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which every kid wanted to see in 1939. And we got to... uh, Near the theater, it was a downpour, and we were right by the old Madison Square Garden. He said, I'm not going to take you to see Snow White, I'm going to take you to see a hockey guy. I didn't know what the heck hockey was, and I started bawling my head off. My father never gave in to me, he dragged me in, and we're watching. The, in those days, they had Sunday afternoon games, the Rovers with Ranger Farm team playing Washington, and I was so furious with him, I, I had to get even, so I rooted against his team. He was rooting for the Rovers, and Washington won, and there was a guy in Washington named Normie Burns. He was a very good hockey player, and he was blonde. And that's how I pictured the Lone Ranger, who was my favorite radio cowboy. And Normie Burns got a hat trick. My father's team lost. Ah, not bad, not bad. Next day I go to school, third grade, Mrs. Gould, our third grade teacher. We did a, a thing called show and tell. She calls on me. What the hell am I going to do? I loved the, the goaltender in hockey. So I did a goaltender for show and tell, and she gave me an A. I said, this hockey ain't too bad after all. So my father took me to see Snow White following Saturday. Sunday we went back to see another hockey game, and I never stopped going. And I thank you, Snow White. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, it's a heck of a story, right, in the twists and turns that life can take. Simple decision your dad made, hey, let's get into this hockey game, and a lifetime love affair began. One other thing was striking, and I do have a photo of it. At the entrance to the old garden, right behind the box office, is a big, big sign all the way across the lobby, and it said, Hockey, the fastest game on earth. And, I, and it made a tremendous impression on me. And, of course, then I, I see the action. And as a kid, I wrote a letter to the New York Times, the first time I ever had my name in print, because it was, it was an answer to some story about sports, and I said, hockey is 
got to be the greatest sport because it not only embodies the skill, the skating, the speed, but you also see wrestling sometimes, you see fighting sometimes, and it's and they ran my letter. Wow. How do you like that? Unbelievable. Mrs. Gould really would have given me an A if she'd seen that. <laughs> she would have. So a boy from Brooklyn falls in love with this sport, but you were just in grammar school then. How did you get involved professionally in covering the sport, or did you determine at an early age that was the road you were going to travel? Well, I... I, I became immediately infatuated with the game. And, of course, this was wartime. Uh, in '42. I was 10 years old, and there was a great team, Coast Guard team, that used to play in the Eastern League, and they had NHL guys. Frankie Brimsick was the goalie, Art Coulter, Hall of Fame Ranger defenseman, and, uh, and, and Johnny Mariucci, the Blackers. Oh, did I love that team. And I used to bring a 20-piece a, uh, band to the garden. They'd sit in the end arena, the Coast Guard team scored, which they did a lot. They'd play Semper Paratus, the Coast Guard marching song. It was just to, and in, during the war, the this, this spirit, the patriotic spirit was unparalleled. And then you got this hockey team. So then, like I, I may have mentioned to you earlier, it was very hard to get games on the radio. Mm-hmm. And for my 10th birthday, my parents got me a little, it was a, like a Philco Transitone radio. And it was 42, and I'm turning the dial. And all of a sudden, I hear this incredible voice. It's Foster Hewitt, a great broadcaster. He's doing the Leaf Detroit Finals. And that's when the Leafs were down three games to zip, and they won four in a row, and they won a cup. Imagine that. And I'm listening to this great, this great guy doing the games and incredible nicknames. That's what made me a Leaf fan, coming back from that. Bucko McDonald on defense. Bingo Campman, his partner. You got a Bucko and a Bingo. And Dave Schreiner, Sweeney Schreiner, goalie Walter Broder, Turk Broder. Phenom- and, and real names that I never heard before because these guys were Canadian. Sylvanus Apps became so, my role model. Yeah. Became my, my, my role model, by the way. So, so I'm, I, I, you know, I tried to listen every Saturday night, but you didn't get the games clear. That's why we were so spoiled today compared to then. If the weather was right, I'd hear the game. Even here, the pregame, they had a comedy team, Wayne and Schuster. It was crazy. So it was sometimes yes, sometimes no. And, of course, I became a Leaf fan. And in 46, 47, by the way, I was doing a scrap. From, remember I said I got, got a radio for my birthday? Yep. I also got a scrapbook from my parents. And it was a wonderful thing. So I started to cut out all the New York cocky stories. By 46, 47, happened to be going to a Leaf Ranger game at the Garden, and I'm waiting for my buddy Howie Sparrow by the out-of-town newsstand. And I see they have a Canadian paper there, Toronto Globe and Mail. <coughs> I thought it cost about 50 bucks. It was about a quarter. I couldn't believe it. I opened up the Globe and Mail. There's Leaf story after Leaf story. It was crazy. It was all hockey. Because not the same in New York, mm-hmm. right? So I find out you could subscribe to it. I subscribe every. I got the Global Mail next day in the mail every day. Uh, scrapbooks to this day, Maddie. I you I still have every single old scrapbook from '42 through '52, and I have used them regularly for stories I do for the hockey news, historic stuff, and uh, yeah. So I was a crazy Leaf fan. Yeah. 
But oh, I, we're going to, by the way, we're going to get to your first job at some point. Here. I want to get into hockey. I'm in Brooklyn College, and I wrote. I'm not being rude, folks. I, I just I, I, know, I love I, listening to. You Stan. Know, but I, I I went up to the, so the old garden. I saw Tommy Lockhart, who ran the Rovers, and I said, uh, I'd like to write a newsletter for you guys about the Eastern League. He said, Go ahead. So I'm up at the garden every delivering my copy. It was going all over the Eastern League, and Herbie Gorman was the Ranger press agent then. And he saw this eager guy, and he said that uh, during the summer of 54, he called me up, and he said, how'd you like to go to work for the Rangers in publicity? I nearly fainted, because I always wanted to get into hockey. Yeah. I wanted to get into hockey so bad, I never thought it would happen in my high school thing, where it said, whatever your job you want to do, I didn't even put in hockey, because I never thought it would happen. He said, uh, he said, get back to me tomorrow, we'll see. I didn't sleep for 24 hours. And he called me up. He said, you got the job. It was heaven. And that's, and from there, I got into newspapering because I worked. I, it was a five-day-a-week job. I worked seven days. I wanted, that's I, been a hallmark of your career. Hard work has always been paramount and to it's your also, success. It's also the hallmark of my greeting card. Which is, that's another story. So anyhow, <laughs> uh, I got to meet all these newspaper guys. And the following year... Uh, an opening came at the Journal American Newspaper, which was then Hearst flagship evening paper. Dave Anderson was doing a, uh, a Brooklyn, Long Island sports column. He went up to do hockey, and I replaced him. And when Dave left for the Times, I took over the hockey beat. And uh, I've been writing hockey ever since. And continue to work in the sport. And I, I'm i sorry, I, it probably came across as rude, but I did want to get to as many stories as I possible. Uh, because it's such a long history and so many interesting little twists and turns along the way and stories like your grammar school teacher uh, making you uh, stand up and do a little show and tell and, and, and part, of, part of the growth of hockey in your life and in your heart. You've done everything in this from a media well, standpoint. Well, I, I, I you, never... P, PR guy... Writer, broadcaster TV, broadcaster radio. Never thought I'd get into TV. How did that happen? Well, first of all, I never thought I'd get in because I'm ugly. (laughs) You got to be, yeah. I'm not like a Hollywood star. You have matinee idol looks in. Uh Okay, anyhow. So, uh, and you know, in those days, Maddie, the print guys thought they were on a a rung up here, and they disparaged. The TV guy. So I get the world hockey came into being, and I get a call from a guy named Eddie Andelman, who was a very famous uh, broadcaster in Boston. Mm-hmm. And I already was on the bad list of the Bruins because I had written some bad stuff about Teddy Green when he nearly killed Phil Goyette of the uh, of the uh, <coughs> Rangers, and uh, so I was I was writing anti Bruins stuff. And the Whalers come along from the WHA. They're playing out of Boston. So Eddie Andelman calls me up and he says, how would you like to do the color for the uh, New England Whalers? I said, no, 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 no. He said, well, there's good money in it. I said, how much? And he tells me how much. It was so fantastic, the amount. I said, yeah, it'll never happen. Uh, but, you know, you go, go back and come back and tell me if this is for real. So he calls me up the next day. This is the amount you get. I took the job. And television in those days, this was 73, 
was a whole it was whole different world it was very primitive yeah it was m- much simpler time but but you- what but why did I fit in? I was already primitive. So I was a natural, right? <laughs> how did you, and I want to get some questions out and answers about devils, people, and personalities, but how did you get associated with the devils originally? I was working for Sports Channel, and because I then wound up from the whalers to doing the Islanders starting in uh, March 75 when they first made the playoffs. And, uh, and then it wasn't Sports Channel. It was just Chuck Dolan's uh, thing. They eventually gave it a, a name. And uh, MSG, which was our competitor then, uh, did one year with the Devils. And then Sports Channel got it back. Mm-hmm. And they, I was doing Islanders and Devils simultaneously. And it was very, very exciting because the Devils were just uh, young then, you know, that was the year when they had the big snow and 350 people yep. uh, showed up. But, uh, you know, these guys like Kenny Danico and Muller, they were Johnny Mack, they were, and I'll tell you one of the greatest moments of my life, right at the top was when Johnny Mack put that puck in past Darren Pang, 1988. Uh, yeah. They made the playoffs. And then going from there, uh, how they progressed. And Doc Ma- Dr. McMullen was one of the greatest characters I've ever met all time. Tough Navy man. I come from a Navy family. My father was in the Navy in World War I. My Uncle Joe and the Seabees in World War I. And Doc Mack and I hit it off, although I, I annoyed him once. And if you annoyed Doc Mack, you had to be very careful. I got, got on his good side after I annoyed him by bringing him my father's World War I, he was on a mine layer, his, the whole, how they did it in the North Sea. So we became buddies again. And Doc Mack and I were terrific. He, I used to have lunch with him all the time. The most, you, you know, you, you, Excuse me. Doc Mack was the most honest, forthright, frank guy I ever met. And of course, uh, it was wonderful, wonderful to be with, you know, to be with, be, be with a young team on the rise. And then you see them progress. They don't make the playoffs the following year, but ultimately they get back and they add more and more talent to that group that got them into the playoffs the first time around, and they win a Stanley Cup in 1995. Lou Lamorello was just recently on the scene when you came on the scene. What was your relationship like with Lou? Well, Lou, what is it still like? I love Lou. Uh, Lou taught me something I never forgot. I taught it my child, children and grandchildren. Do what's right and do it now. Which would take over my father's, which was uh, do it right or don't do it at all. But I like Lou's. Do what's right and do it. Uh, when Luke got the job, Doug Carpenter was the coach. I always made it my business to try to meet who was ever running the show, like Doc Mack. And uh, Lou invited me to lunch. Talk about the team, because this was in the fall. And he asked me different things about the team, and he said, what do you think of the coach? And I didn't want to badmouth Doug. I said, uh, well, why don't you uh, wait a couple of months and, uh, and see? And, of course, uh, they started off wonderfully. And then it, just before Christmas, they had a huge game at the Garden with the Rangers. The Rangers blew them out 9-3. And, of course, that eventually led to... Uh, Jimmy Schoenfeld taking over, which was another 
a phenomenal thing because of just how they rallied down the home stretch. And in a certain point when it looked hopeless, he put Bobby Sauve, the little backup goalie, in. It was a 2 2 tie mm-hmm. with Buffalo, but that got him a point. That point and was that, big. Yeah. It was, I mean, uh, Sean Burke was the stalwart coming out of the Olympics and led them. I mean, he just had an unbelievable run, but you're right, a game like that. I mean, I think about two seasons ago, think back to two seasons ago, and Devils are in Tampa, Florida, and it appears it's just one of those games based on how the schedule unfolded, kind of a throwaway. All right, you don't expect the Devils to win this game. Eddie Lack beats them, and the Devils eke their way into the playoffs. So, you know, even some small thing that seems insignificant at the time becomes a huge thing, like wrote, Bob Sove. Yeah, they wrote a song that little things mean a lot. And there were a, a lot of little things, including Joe Sorella trapping the puck at the blue line to get the shot that led to the rebound that Johnny Mack uh, got it. And there were some uh, wonderful uh, second-tier guys like Claude Loisel. Claude Loisel and Dougie Brown were as good a penalty kills I've ever seen. And, of course, uh, in a key game, they scored two shorthanded goals against the Caps. And, uh, you know, you, you had uh, uh, I mean, Jim Korn was a, an mm-hmm. early Lou acquisition. Just, a, just a, a ton of wonderful fellows. And Sean Burke and I became good friends. What, what is it about Lou that has made him so successful essentially wherever he's gone? When he took over the Nets, when the Nets and Devils joined forces— they went to the NBA Finals twice. They didn't win, but under his leadership, they did go there twice. He's been successful on the collegiate rank. The 1996 World Cup team, one of the great stories of hockey, and he was an architect. I mean, well, he lived what his. Is it about? He, Matt, he lived his words: "Do what's right and do it now." And he and but uh, I worked alongside Lou for a long, long time, and Lou had a set of rules, and. We were told, you know, what we uh, the TV, what we couldn't do, where we could be, where we couldn't be, and you stuck to those rules, and everything was hunky dory. Same thing went with his players. This is the way it's going to be, and that's it. You don't like it? Go bye bye. And some pretty good guys went bye bye. Uh, no question about that. And some guys that I really liked, like Billy Guerin. Now, Billy Guerin, Billy Guerin when they won the Cup, I hosted uh, MC Billy Guerin night in Springfield. And, uh, but, you know, uh, he and Lou, but, you know, want it, but, but goodbye, goodbye. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. uh, I think Billy was involved in a little bit of a holdout that final yeah, year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He got traded to Edmonton. Jason Arnott comes, and yeah, a couple exactly, of years later, exactly. Jason Arnott scoring the game-winning goal in, yeah. in the year 2000. Uh, what are some of the other Devils players that you've had relationships with that, when you think back, were, for you, the fondest? Claude Lemieux. When he came to the uh, Devils, we did a feature on him, went to his house, and never forget this, and uh, he was an accomplished carpenter. And he took us into his carpentry room. He did some stuff, and he was a, he was he was he was so uh, fun to be around when you weren't playing against him. And he was very, you know, my 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 job was interviewing. If this guy was a great interview, I love him for the rest of my life. And I had some, you know, from team to team. And Claude was was wonderful. I, I'll never forget when they won the cup. 
in 90, you know, the first cup. 95. 95, I remember being in the dressing room, and he was he was one of the last guys after all the champagne and everything. He was sitting on one of the big uh, uh, locker room things where he stuffed the, the old clothes, uh, just sipping a beer, and just a vision of him. He was in seventh heaven. And, of course, he was so decisive. Talk about decisive in Philly when he got that, he shot that goal past Hexel from about 45 miles yeah. out. You could hear that building go quiet. Uh, and uh, but I must tell you one more great story because when they came back and they won that sixth game against Philly, remember Doc McMullen was in a battle with the New Jersey sports he, it was a it was a bitter battle. Mm-hmm. He wanted a better deal. I think he was getting a threat good... of moving Nashville, perhaps the location they would. No go kidding to. around. This yeah. was scary. This was not that Nashville thing was for real. But they, you know, they they they're, they're, the, they're the underdog in every series on the road, on the road, on the road. Now now they beat Philly in Game Six, and I'm walking into the dressing room, and who's in front of me but Doc Mack with his pet Labrador retriever, Bubba, Bubba. who he always fed bagels. Mm-hmm. Bubba, the bagel eater, was incredible. And I grab, I grab Doc and I say, Doc, what is the significance of this victory? And only Doc could have come up with this line. He says, the significance is that Lou is one hell of a negotiator, meaning that now that they're going into the finals, they're going to get a good deal yeah. from the sports authority no matter what. But what a great line. He, Lou is one hell of a negotiator. <laughs> well, and I often think, going back to an earlier part of this podcast, where you just never know if your dad takes you to Snow White that day and doesn't peel off and go to a hockey game who knows how your life might change same thing i don't know what would have happened if the devils don't win those series don't win the stanley cup are they nashville bound indeed would the new jersey politicians have you know come to their senses and said this is a team we want to represent the garden state and you know stake a claim they always call themselves the new jersey devils not afraid to use the state's name uh and so on and so forth and, and had they left who knows uh, Sir, I don't know what I don't know what my life would have been like well, because it's been a great relationship for so many years. World's first hockey writer William Shakespeare said it: "There's much virtue in if, and you can if till the cows come home." The fact of the matter is, they did win the cup, they got a better deal, and but Doc Mack had this wonderful idea with his own dough to build a new arena in Hoboken. Yep. It broke his heart that. Uh, he got double-crossed on that. Christy but, Todd Whitman was the governor at the time, and she, in the end, threw her hat and yeah. her support behind a, a Newark building because the Nets and the Devils were both vying for right. a new building. Right. Nets wanted to come right. here. Devils wanted to go to Hoboken. And out of respect to Dr. Mack, when we had our conversations on the air about it, I certainly saw the virtues of Hoboken. Yeah. Uh, he had this beautiful architect. Yeah. draw up what the building would look like yeah. on top of the path building yeah. beautiful look out at the river i always thought newark was a better option now to be honest with you longevity is a very important term to me so i wasn't going to buck the owner too many times on the air but i always thought newark was the better option because of the transportation i, I just i can't see couldn't see then and certainly now anyone who lives in hoboken would tell you the madness of getting in and out of that place would have been uh, you know intensified by a team there uh, but in the end, you're right. He was very disappointed, and Newark. Do you know why I wanted Newark? 
I learned to roller skate on High Street, wherever High Street is. My aunt, Hattie, my aunt Hattie and Uncle Paul lived in Newark, and a lot of the family lived in Newark. And my Aunt Hattie bought me a pair of super-duper roller skates. You yeah. had to use a skate here on that. And I remember learning to roller skate in Newark, and I remember I had relatives uh, in various parts of Newark. So I, I, and I, I used to love coming out on the Hudson Tubes, which are now known as, what are they, Path? Path. Path. Uh, I loved coming to Newark. Loved coming you, you, to Newark. You were going to the, the, not the suburbs, you were going to the rural part of the state at that point. No, of the country. No, I'm only kidding. But you got out of Brooklyn. Uh, is that good or bad? <laughs> no, I'm just saying you got out of the city and you came to the largest city in New Jersey, but it was still more. Yeah, yeah, but it was very, very exciting. They had the Bamberg's. There was a Bamberg Thanksgiving Day. Yeah. I had a great time in Newark as a kid. So coming back was nice. You know, you can come home again. You can. Yeah. Oh, I, th- I thought you couldn't. I mean, there's much virtue in if. And how was Bill growing <laughs> up? Was he a nice guy? He's uh, <laughs> a hell of a hockey writer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How many books have you written? Uh, well, I, you know, I've written not just on hockey. I've written about subways and trains. I, uh, I, I did a book Confessions about... Confessions of a Brooklyn... Uh, Charlie Dodger from Brooklyn. There we go. Uh, my hockey number, I never counted, but I know it's more than 90. And uh, one of the books that I'm most proud of, I did, uh, Doc Mack uh, commissioned for the 15th anniversary, he had the, uh, a nightclub made down, down in the uh, arena mm-hmm. at the uh, Meadowlands, and he asked me and my wife Shirley to do a history of the team that was only given, it was not for sale, it was only for season ticket holders, they had the gold something or other. Yep, the gold and, club. Right. And... Uh, so uh, that's one, one of my favorite books. Uh, it was very, very easy for us to write. I mean, it's fun, it was fun to write books with Shirley because she was a better writer than me <laughs> and she was a better editor than me. But uh, I had my byline there anyhow. You know, it was like Matt and the Maven. What the heck are you doing? It shouldn't be Maven and Mac, right? <laughs> or Maven Matt. and the Maven. <laughs> yeah, how'd you ever get Matt? How'd you get? I anyhow, you're a better agent than me. Well, they went. Alphabetically, M A T M A V. You know, this is it. this is so much fun. We could do this for three hours. We you could. realize that? We could, and we've done about twenty minutes. We'll have another ten minutes or so, or maybe more. Twenty-five. I've looked. Go at ahead. The clock. Sure. Throw another few... question at me. My my point though is, you've written a ton of books. Some of them are incredibly popular uh, in hockey history about the Bruins, for instance. Was that your bestseller? Bobby Orr and the Big Bad Bruins is the book that helped us build our pay for building a house. In the Catskills. So no kidding well. around. Yeah, no, it did well. And it was the right player at the right time. And in the right place, Boston was your great, great hockey town. Now, that was in my, you know, journalistically or in a literary sense, it was not a very good book. But I've done very good books that didn't sell like this one because it was Bobby Orr coming yeah. up. And, uh, and I followed that with uh, Derek Sanderson's autobiography, I've Got to Be Me. Uh, which I'll treasure because Derek was one, two, the two best storytellers of all time for me, Derek Sanders and Don Cherry. I did Cherry's autobiography also. So when Cherry's book came out, it was, we, title was Grapes, and he was interviewed about, you know, well, well, how does it feel to be an author? And Cherry said, two years ago, I couldn't spell author. He says, now I are one. <laughs> what did you think about him getting let go? Well, I was sad. I was sad because uh, he eventually apologized, but too late. 
Uh, I was a big Don Cherry fan for a long, long time. I became less of a Don Cherry fan. Always friends. Mm -hmm. Always friends. But when he started to wear the cockamamie circus suits, I felt it detracted from the knowledge. Not that I wouldn't watch him or anything like that, but it wasn't the same. It wasn't the same. But it was sad. It was sad. It was sad. And he was sad. And it was, you know, uh, one of those things. But what a storyteller he was. Yeah. Well, and a funny guy. And, uh, you know, unfortunately said what he said. And it was one too many straws that right. the camel's back. Uh, you said the Boston book, The Big Bad Bruins, was not, from a literary sense, the best written book, but it was the bestseller. What was the best book you wrote from a literary standpoint? Well, my subway book. Uptown Downtown was really one of the first of its kind. And uh, I, I've done uh, three subway books since. Uh, the best one of all is the one, that, the last one I did called The Subway in the City. Uh, it's huge. You can get a hernia just picking <laughs> it up. And that's why it doesn't sell too well. Because, but it's great for doctors. It's Doctor, called a breaking doctors buy, coffee table doctors, book. Kids, people buy my book, The Subway in the City, and they rent to the doctor for that hernia <laughs> operation. But uh, AMA so, approved. Uh, I'm very, very proud of that. Very proud of that. And the other book that I'm very proud of is a book that I did with Shirley. It was the first Macmillan Hockey Encyclopedia. And Shirley made that book because it was the start of the computer age. She grasped what the heck it was all about. And she did so much phenomenal research because in those days, the NHL was, was in primitive time in terms... She had to, went to go up to Montreal office and they had stats on pieces of cardboard. I couldn't possibly have done that. So, and that, I use that book to this day. Now, they came, the NHL later come out with this gigantic thing called Total Hockey, which is mm -hmm. a very, very valuable book. But you think my book was heavy? You need a you needed a crane. No, I mean you needed a crane to pick up that book. But I I I can't tell you, Matty. Almost I don't go a week without going back to our book. Really? Wow. So uh, tremendously uh, proud of it, and of course totally indebted to uh, to Shirley. Who and we did a lot of good books together. We did a book called Up from the Minor Leagues of Hockey, where we interviewed guys talking about their minor league days, guys like Les Binkley, the goalie became the Penguins goalie, Ed Van Imp, who was on the cup-winning flies, a lot of stuff. Now, she was very, she uh, really, because in those days, uh, the Rangers were playing, mm -hmm. and we used to have season tickets at the Garden, and she hated Johnny Ferguson of the Canadians. And Johnny was the one who was going to be an up from the minors. And we interviewed him at Philadelphia at dinner. And before we started the interview, she got up and she said, look, I want you to know, Mr. Ferguson, I hate you. <laughs> she was always direct. And after wife. that, she loved him. Yeah. And I wound up doing his book. There you go. I got funny. Go ahead. No, go. You said that funny. Well, story. you were one of the toughest guys in the world. Yep. So I'm living on the Upper West Side, and I'm doing the book with Johnny Ferguson, one of the toughest guy in the history of the world, right? And we're sitting in the outside. It was during the summer at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. They had a biblical garden, very nice and quiet. And we're sitting there, and they had these little animals that nobody knew about, including uh, peacock 
And while I'm interviewing Fergie, a chicken leaps out from behind the bush and it scared him. It scared <laughs> the toughest man in hockey, scared to death. But, but uh, you know, working with Fergie was uh, wonderful. Um, we could do a half hour, I'm being serious, on your wife's accomplishments. She was the last one to speak with Terry Sawchuk before he passed away. She was a great journalist in her own And she life. broke the barrier for women at the garden. They didn't know, women were not allowed in this restaurant. I didn't know that, really. Oh, they, well, if you were a member of the press, you got a ticket for every game, like every fan. And on the ticket, it said, ladies, in real English, ladies not permitted in the press box. Wow. This is a fact. Thank God we've traveled uh, quite a distance. But since. she got an assignment from the Kingston Whig Standard, a famous newspaper in where Don Cherry came from, Kingston, Ontario, to do a story on the Ranger Leaf uh, playoff in 71, and they would not let her in the press box. Wow. Jim Bowton, of the famous pitcher and author of Ball Four, yeah. was then a broadcast. She was right, be, she was right in front of him. And so he was a witness. She went to the New York City uh, Human Rights Commission and uh, easily won. And the next game, she was... But she, she, Good for her. I always, told, I always said to Shirley, you were not a good enough press agent for yourself. She did not exploit it. And nobody... You didn't even know about it. I didn't know that at all, no. I, I knew the, the Terry Sawchuk story, great goaltender. and yeah, uh, she, yeah. She was able to get that last yeah. interview with him a week before he died. It was yeah. a fall, a fight, and so on and so forth. But I did know she was a great journalist, and we could spend a half hour talking about her exploits. But thank you for sharing that one about uh, making the press box. The only thing I was better than place. Shirley, and the only thing was paddle handball. <laughs> She's better than me in everything else. Okay, last couple here, and then and then we'll let you go. You've been gracious with me. What your if time. I don't want to leave? Well, we've been spending we, we've okay. spent so much time with you today uh, doing okay. video I'm, things. I'm, video I'm projects boring, I can tell. Not at all. Okay. Uh, why aren't you? Do you think in the hockey hall of fame? I've asked the question, but I'm going to preface it now with a statement. You've been in radio. You've been in television. You've written nearly a hundred books, many of them bestsellers. You were controversial in the proper way. You made people think. You had an opinion, and you didn't stink about your opinion. You've been there from the early times of hockey, pushing this sport as an American in a sport that was quintessentially Canadian for the longest time. I I, I don't know why. No, I'll give you the answer. As a takeoff on that old uh, book, somebody up there likes me. Somebody, somebody's on the committee don't like me, which is. They don't have to like me. You like me. I love you. Okay. So, so I was nom- I've been nominated. So uh, I came in second to Larry Brooks the previous year. So I figured this year <laughs> had a shot. I came out. I came out about twenty eighth. Yeah. Uh, but but uh, um, the two guys uh, who were behind it journalistically were Alan Crater of the Times, who mm-hmm. was a great supporter of mine. And Tommy, uh, uh, I forget his last name now, uh, who was this hockey news editor, Tom Murray. So Tom Murray was upset, as with, and Tom Murray, very hot-headed guy, and he tried to find out. And he did ask um, Bob McKenzie, mm-hmm. 
who I wrote for when he was editor-chief of the Hockey News. And uh, Bob McKenzie's answer to him was, Stan is a polarizing figure. So uh, the North Pole liked me and the South Pole didn't like me. So uh, like I will still... Like the black and white Scottish terriers ele- we had no, no, kids. No, no, uh, uh, I won the Lester Patrick Award. Yes. What else do I need? What, how you know, what do I need? No, do I, your do place I, in history I, I is found, set. I tell you how I found out that I didn't need to be in the Hockey Hall of Fame or the Elmer Ferguson Award. And that is I used my Metro card and the subway, it worked. They didn't keep me out. But what's ironic and sad to me is Elmer Ferguson was the guy who gave me one of my first breaks and got me into the business because I was writing for the Hockey News and Ken McKenzie, who on the Hockey News at the Canadian Football News, and he asked me to do a story, and Alex Webster, who was a star in Canada with the Montrealowitz, came down to play for the New York Giants. And he asked me to do an interview before the season started. I went out to Rahway, New Jersey. It was a blue collar. Uh, what a, and the guy was just wonderful. He gave me all kinds of stuff, and I wrote the piece. And I had so much stuff they did it, and I think two parts, maybe even three parts, and Elmer Ferguson. Saw this, he was, you know, the dean of uh, sports writers in Montreal, and he excerpted from my, he did two columns of my piece, and when I, the job opened at the New York Journal American, the thing that my uh, sports editor, Max Case, was most impressed with, with what Elmer Ferguson wrote. So, what do I, am I unhappy about being, not being in? Of course I'm unhappy about it. But what the hell? That's life. I got my health. I got you. I got my love to keep me warm, right? Absolutely. Hockey is my love, and hockey keeps me warm. I'll tell you this. There's no question about it. I'm able to do what I am able to do at 87 years old only because of hockey. Hockey keeps the juices flowing. And as you can tell, I haven't lost any of the motion. Now, I'm still a 14-year-old. Unfortunately, I've never grown up. I would like to. I strive to be 15, but I'll be 14 forever, and that's it. And it's not been a bad place to be. And uh, it has treated you well, this sport. You've treated it wonderfully well. And, uh, I, I, again, I don't know why you're not well, I couldn't thing, be but, happier. But uh, you know it, what? Doesn't life, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. A life well-lived is the best revenge, I achieved right? my ambition when Herbie Gorman called me up and said, how'd you like to work for the uh, Rangers? That's all I needed. Yep. Hey, listen, it's been a magnificent run for you. Many, many more years of success. I will end it on this. When I first started covering this sport, and I knew it, growing up in New York City and then moving to New Jersey, I certainly was a fan of all the four sports. But to say I knew hockey would have been a stretch. But the first real opportunity I got from our friends Jerry Passaro at Sports Channel and Bob DePoto, who's now an executive with MSG, Jerry's still working at MSG, was to cover hockey. And the way it was back in the day, two channels, Sports Channel and Sports Channel Plus was the backup. The Islanders and Devils were playing at the same time. Whoever was the home team was on the main channel. And the Maven went to the main channel. Whoever was on Uh, the road or who was not playing as prominent an opponent was on the B channel. And so I got a chance to cut my teeth on the B side, covering a lot of devil's games, some Islanders as well, because you always got the main game going back to a point you made about a great interview. 
I know the sport, but I don't know the sport. I'm getting this huge opportunity to work in the National Hockey League. And I could call you up and you'd say, make sure you talk to this guy. He's a good interview. Avoid this guy. He's a bad interview. You were gracious with your time. You helped break barriers for me. If I said Stan Fischler said, boom, everything was done. You were instrumental in where I've gotten to, and I've never forgotten that. And so publicly, I want to thank you. for. I got bad news for you. There's a bill in the mail. <laughs> Lose my address. <laughs> you know something? I, as I said before, Matty. The- because you could have said to a young kid, hey, figure it out. You could have said, as many people in this business do, uh, out of insecurity, uh, this, might, this guy might be after my job. But you never did. You always shared your time, and I've been forever grateful. Well, you certainly uh, come a long way because it, you know, it could have been the Maven and Matt. <laughs> Somehow, even though I'm very thankful, I usurped your status in the title. Next time we do a podcast, this is a true story. I'm going to tell you about how Phil Watson, the Ranger coach, nearly threw me off the moving train going to from New Boston New York. Next time, there are a million and one stories that Stan Fischler can tell. Stan, thanks very much for sharing some of them today. I know our listeners really got a kick out. And uh, kidding aside, thank you, Maddie, and thank you, Snow White. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, That'll do it for this official Devils podcast this week. The great Stan Fischler, the Maven, joining us. I know you enjoyed it. Thanks very much again, Stan, for your time. Thank you for listening, everyone, and we'll see you next time on the Devils podcast. Good rehearsal. Yeah. (laughs) Were we recording? (laughs) 